Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. After a two-week rally, Wall Street ended the week down on tech stock returns, a slight slowdown in new jobs, and the Federal Reserve raising short-term borrowing rates by 75 basis points, or 0.75%. British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace said that the country's planned drive to increase military spending to 3% of GDP will remain aspirational. This, as the White House urges Ukraine to remain open to negotiating a settlement with Russia as Moscow pounds Ukraine's power, water, and heating grids as winter sets in. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun, speaking at the company's Investor Day in Seattle, said that the company would not be developing a new jet until the mid-2030s, citing engine developments, uh, but touted the company's investment in autonomous aircraft company Whisk, unveiling the a, a concept drawing uh, of that firm's new version 6 aircraft. Australia decided to buy C-130Js, while Sweden uh, is expressing its discontentment with the NH-90 helicopter, which is not necessarily a new development. The Zuhai Air Show once uh, the bell of the airshow ball is going on in China, but with far fewer Westerners uh, attending as well as other news. Joining us as they do every week to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy in Washington, D.C. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks as always, Vago. Happy weekend, Vago. Great to be on. Indeed, it wouldn't be Sunday unless all of you uh, were joining me. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And please check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters each week, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure having you on. Ron, walk us through uh, the broader market. Obviously, uh, some of the leading tech names uh, did uh, send shockwaves across uh, the market. Obviously, Elon Musk's ownership of Twitter has also uh, rattled uh, folks. And then we've got broader economic news. Talk to us about the broader driving factors, the Fed move, and then how in turn uh, the aerospace and defense uh, group performed as a consequence. Yeah, sure. I mean, the S&P for the week was uh, down um, uh, a little over 3%, call it you know, 3.5%, a little smidge under 3.5%. Uh, the 10-year end of the week, uh, are just below 4.2%, uh, kind of keeps going higher. Uh, the Fed, I think, confused confused markets a bit because um, their prepared remarks were maybe a little more dovish uh, uh, than folks were thinking or maybe in line with maybe the more with the more dovish folks were thinking. But then in the question and answer period, um, uh, Secretary Powell was probably a little more hawkish than people were thinking, uh, essentially kind of saying, all right, you know, maybe we're not going to do 75 basis points here on out, but we might do smaller rates, but for much longer. So the ultimate rate could ultimately go higher. So that's still, you know, a, a, a 
tug of war in the market. If you talk to fixed income investors, they're definitely more um, more bearish than things than equity investors. Equity investors seem to, every time the, the Fed says they're going to raise rates, they think it's the last time the Fed's going to raise rates and the Fed's going to pivot. And the fixed income community tends to not take that view that you know ultimately the Fed will pivot when it pivots. So kind of interesting tug of war going on there. You know, the big- isn't it isn't it funny the absurdity of it all, right? I mean, we sort of know how this drama is going to play. This train has been approaching for a long time. And once the train gets here, everybody's like, oh my God, it's a train. <laughs> well, it's it's just, you know, it's interesting that the, you know, the two the two sides of public markets, you know, debt versus equity, you kind of take a very different view of things. And I guess I fall a little bit more into the debt camp and that the Fed's going to stop when the Fed stops. And every time the Fed raises doesn't mean next time they're going to stop. But you, you you sort of see that happening. And, you know, the, the Fed commentary this time around just sort of confused people even more. So anyway, and I don't, I don't think that was their intention. It's just sort of how it played out. Uh, you know, we look at uh, the VIX index, something we talk about, you know, almost weekly here. Yeah, and the VIX is, you know, kind of between that, that, that call it 20 to 35 range, kind of almost in the middle there around 25. Um, and that's just a, a measure of volatility in the market. Oil prices as a measure of energy prices, you know, they've been hovering, kind of depends if you're looking at at, at, at Brent or WTI, uh, but they're, you know, somewhere in the, the mid the mid to high 80s to mid 90s, depending on, you know, what region is coming from and what flavor of, of oil it is. But, you know, energy prices have been kind of going uh up a bit, but you know, it's a no on no surprising moves there. Uh, and then, and you know, finally, when you look at uh, the the aerospace and defense group, you know, broadly it was a uh, the group broadly outperformed the S and P. Boeing did the best on the heels of their investor meeting, and we can talk about that. Uh, but when you look at just kind of the the vector of stock performance in the group, like I said, the S and P was down a little over three percent. You know, General Dynamics was essentially flat. Northrop was down. Uh, about 5%. Lockheed was down about half a percent. Raytheon was up about just a smidge. Uh, the aircraft lessors, uh, aircraft's a good bellwether there. It reported this week, it was up 5%. Uh, and then on the heels of their investor meeting, uh, Boeing ended the week up almost 11%. So kind of by far and away, uh, Boeing of the large caps we cover was the, kind of the rock star of the week uh, after the investor meeting. And and we can uh, we're going to get a little bit deeper into the message Dave Calhoun was giving. And if you're an investor, right, and you just had the CEO tell you they're not going to be laying out, um, you know, billions of dollars to develop a new airplane, you're going to breathe a sigh of relief and say, hey, they can throw off some more cash in the meantime, right? Yeah, I think you know, I mean, not to kind of jump ahead of that conversation, but maybe super quickly, um, you know, he threw out a cash target number uh, out in kind of call it 25, 26 of ten billion dollars of free cash flow. And you know, part of the way you get there is you are spending less on R and D. Uh, you're not spending zero on R and D, but you're spending less on R and D, and your R and D is more on derivatives, finishing up what you got on your plate now. You know, the Dash Seven, the Dash Ten, uh, the Triple Seven X variants, the freighter, that sort of stuff. Um, but you know, he did say in no uncertain terms that they're not going to start a new airplane until sometime in the 2030s. Uh, and and we're going to uh, get to that in a minute. Sash, uh, give us a kind of a walkthrough on European markets uh, and how the group uh, performed in Europe. I mean, look, in general, European stocks didn't move very much this week. And when they did move, it tended to be down a bit. But, um, you know, the standouts probably, Rolls-Royce had a trading statement, um, uh, effectively a quarterly update that was uh, treated as being 
you know, positive in the sense that nothing very much more had changed, nothing very much more had, had gone wrong. They're clearly seeing a slightly slower recovery in terms of uh, their civil spares business. They're way more exposed to China because that's where a big slug of uh, white, their Rolls-powered wide bodies are. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the market, you know, with, with the Rolls-Royce share price down at the sort of, you know, 80 pence level or thereabouts, the market's just delighted that, that nothing more is going wrong with the company, having had a, uh, a really pretty bad year uh, so far in terms of, of just disappointing people about the, uh, the pace of the recovery. Rolls is one of the slower recoverers uh, in this sector. Um, Airbus was up about 4%, um, you know, arguably Boeing not launching a new aircraft is good for Airbus. It just gives them, you know, a lot more time to, to keep on uh, their number one position, uh, producing a ton of aircraft and throwing off uh, even, even more cash. Um, and the disappointments, probably Rheinmetall is interesting. Um, there's some concerns, I think, that uh, uh, Switzerland may not allow uh, Swiss-made munitions to be transferred from other European countries to Ukraine. Uh, Rheinmetall produces uh, the majority of its anti-aircraft uh, weapons in uh, Switzerland. It's the old early Contravis business. And um, if countries that have bought these, and it's a very, you know, these are very widely exported um, heavy caliber uh, cannon. Um, if countries that have bought these are not allowed to transfer them to Ukraine, that you know that that's clearly a big disappointment. But you know, other than that, the sector basically ended the uh, ended the week flat to marginally down. Uh, but it's been pretty bumpy. Richard, I'd like to bring you in the conversation and and start with uh, your favorite topic, uh, commenting on uh, Boeing. Uh, obviously, uh, Ron sort of gave us a, a, a flavor of what came out of David Calhoun that pleased investors. Uh, but he said that he can't develop. What I'm sort of interested in is plumbing, sort of getting everybody's analysis on on his logic on this, because the argument made was that he expects some major engine breakthrough uh, between now and uh, then that would somehow preclude the development of a new aircraft. And I'm kind of interested in sort of getting everybody's take on this. I thought ultimately that we were looking at synthetic aviation fuels and SAFs as sort of a one-for-one -one replacement for what we're doing, right? Not lead to fundamentally differently powered aircraft, uh, although that is, is a vision and could be a prescient vision, right? But I mean, right now we have geared turbofan, uh, we've got the LEAP uh, technology on the General Electric side, right? Where are we on engine technology? What did you make of the statement uh, and the, the broader case that he was making about why not to develop a new airplane until the mid-2030s, which means that that doesn't come to market until the late 2030s, if not the, you know, 2040? Yeah, that's right. I think he said won't even lift a pencil or something until 2030. Um, it was pretty extraordinary because just back in June, he told Aviation Week that it would probably be about two years. And that, of course, means, you know, we were all waiting for another, I don't know, 16 to 18 months and something would happen. And obviously Boeing has been doing, Boeing Commercial has been doing some prep work. But apparently he's had a revelation about engine technology and exactly nobody else has seen that engine revelation. So I strongly suspect that coupled with, you know, a complete absence of any explanation or any effort at, at trying to say what's in the future, this is simply a perfectly good rationale for not spending any money and instead returning it to shareholders. And uh, as given the, the dire uh, numbers that they had presented from defense the previous week that resulted in a, a nasty share drop, this allowed for a recovery. So is there any actual science or strategy or anything behind it? No, of course not. Uh, it's just 
you know, we got to rescue our share price from an unpleasant, uh, unpleasant drop the previous week. Now, what does it mean? Well, you know, I mean, the idea of going a quarter of a century with no commercial jet, new all clean sheet commercial jet. Um, how do you maintain engineering teams, design teams, capabilities? How do you attract talent to a company that's proud of doing nothing? That's really not good. Uh, and of course, meanwhile, Airbus has the just two simple things, learn how to ramp up on the 321neo that everyone wants, way over 4,000 in the order book. And uh, of course, develop the A2-2500 uh, to damage the MAX-8, which of course is Boeing's bestseller. And with that, they'll be able to get to 75%. And then by then, uh, Calhoun or his successor, more likely, will be able to say, well, we only have a 25% market share. This just isn't our business. We're getting out of it. And that'll be the perfect rationale. And this is how companies are destroyed. So um, short term- So, so you're handle. sticking with your thesis that this is an intentional effort to um, pave the way for a breakup in in such manner that the condition of the company is bad enough that antitrust regulators would would basically say, look, in order to be able to save whatever is left, we will allow an, an unprecedented combination. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good scenario. Is it the base case? I don't know. It's you know it's awfully cynical, but then again, I don't really have any other explanations. So basically, prep the ground for a company breakup. The alternative, of course, is just you know run the commercial unit for cash and then worry have someone else worry about that in the future. And in the meantime, my God, I mean, I I I'm hard pressed to think of who would take their place as a second force beyond you know 2040 or whatever i come calhoun's yeah i mean calhoun seems to be the best airbus ceo ever i mean in terms of securing their future he can't be beat uh ron uh let me go to you because you were actually uh there live and in person in sunny uh seattle uh which is interesting messaging on the part uh of the company even as uh you know the sense grows uh that the country company wants to reduce its footprint uh, even more so uh, in the Pacific uh, Northwest, uh, its ancestral home. What did you make of Calhoun's uh, statements, his strategy? And what, I mean, is there something that we're missing? And again, I mean, you know, he is the CEO of Boeing, right? He might know something about the future of propulsion that he's privy to that maybe, you know, right? I mean, there's always uh, somebody who knows uh, the future before everybody else does. I mean, what's your sense on what he said and the rationale of it and what it means for the company between now and then, right? I mean, can it even survive with its current product stream until it starts to sort of get revenue when it's, you know, right? I mean, presumably they could get some advanced orders, but that's not for more than a decade in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, I'd say one um, they hosted the investor meeting in Seattle because they wanted to show us uh, the 737 facility. Um, and they did. Um, and, and that was an interesting tour. Um, and we can talk about that if you want in a bit. Um, on, on, his, on the remarks specifically around not doing a new air, aircraft until um, next decade. I mean, they, they were a little fuzzy around. I mean, are they actually going to start it in 2035, which would put it in service in 2040? Or would they have it by 2035? Um, and, and the real case he was making, as, as you know, Richard said, was just around, you know, you know, there could be this change in, you know, engine technology and so on and so forth. And, you know, I've kind of fallen the camp that I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think we're going to see that. I mean, I think it's going to be SAF, like you mentioned, and, and Boeing is itself a big supporter of SAF. When you, when you look at the, the sustainability stuff that they talk about, and they, they talk about SAF. Um, 
it's, you know, from the investment community point of view, there is a tension, right? I mean, there's an understanding that, um, you know, the company has to do something to preserve itself into the future. But, but the flip side is, if you look at their recent, you know, ventures to, to do new things, Seven, you know, seven three seven max is a perfect example. Seven eight seven is another good example. That the actual return on these investments is is, is pretty awful, right? I mean, seven eight seven's been around for quite some time now. If you look at the initial investment, they still haven't returned on that. Let alone all the additional costs that went into the program with the most recent shutdown. Uh, and you know, seven three seven did have a return until the latest you know thing that happened, which by our estimate is going to cost the company thirty billion dollars. So they got to deliver a whole bucket full of maxes to try to, you know, offset that. Um, so in the investment community, I think there's this tension between, yeah, we understand that they're an airplane company that need to do things, but what's the point of doing it if you can't make any money doing it? And you get into this sort of spiral where, you know, if that's sort of what you're what you're chasing, that's just really, really good for, for Airbus and competitors. Um, you know, I have been an advocate, I still am, um, that they should be doing something. Um, you know, I've gotten pushback in the investment community from that, but ultimately they are an airplane company and they need to bring new products to market because um, if they don't, it's just like, like Richard said, it's great for their competitor, but it all right. also opens the door for others. So, you know, I'll throw this one out there. Um, you know, Embraer has been struggling a bit. They're very capable. Boeing's not their partner anymore, but now they know what Boeing's going to do. Um, you know, is could, could Embraer pull a, you know, an E, you know, you know, they're doing E195, could they do an E200, an E205? Sure they could. Um, does that mean they have to do it by themselves? No. Could they get an engine from Rolls, Rolls-Royce? Maybe. That could get Rolls back into the narrow body market. Uh, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of, you know, possibilities that could that could happen now. Um, so, you know, the, you know the, I think this is kind of more, more short-term focused, um, obviously. I mean, they didn't talk about market share, I think, on purpose, um, because this kind of implies that, like we've mentioned in the past, in the narrow body market, Airbus's position is now nailed down, fait accompli. You, you know, we could, you know, bounce back and forth. You know, is it going to be 25, 35, uh, 40% market share for Boeing? But whatever it is, it's going to be less than Airbus's and it's probably 40 or less, right? right? So that's kind of where we are. And and remember, uh, as, as you were fond of pointing out, right, the KC-390 fuselage diameter is a 767 diameter airplane, right? I mean, so they're demonstrating a capability uh, to be able to go farther, higher up the food chain, uh, as well as sort of expand in the single aisle market, uh, where they've been remarkably successful. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 from a capabilities point of view, I don't, I don't think it's an issue. It's just, you know, how do you fund it, that kind of thing. And and to be quite frank, if you look at where Embraer's equity is today, I mean, could they easily become a partner with somebody or, you know, who, who knows how it would go? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that is, you know, out of the cards. And in fact, you know, when one of the major competitors puts all their cards on the table, then all right, it makes it a lot easier for everybody else to start making decisions about what they're going to do. Um, and, and we can come back around. I want to get uh, Sash's his, uh, hand up. Sash, uh, go ahead. And then I want to come back and sort of get your thoughts on what you thought was interesting on the 737 line, because it is it is the world's smallest factory that can have, you know, an incredible output of airplanes, but that's also in part thanks to what Spirit Aerosystems does. But we can get to that uh, in, in, in a minute. Go ahead, Sash. Your take? Yeah, I mean, I am very struck by the degree to, that what we're seeing with Boeing is a, is a pretty horrible failure of capitalism going on. Um, and I'm, I'm not in favor of capitalism, it's what I do. But 
the idea that Boeing executives should be allowed to make decisions based on return on investment and so forth, rather than thinking about the system and, and being cognizant of the systemic importance of Boeing to America is bizarre. No other country with a civil aircraft business in the world would think like that. The idea that Airbus executives say, we're not going to do anything because we want to make a lot more cash um, and you know, let's you know, possibly even pay, our, pay us more. They would get a phone call from um, some of their state shareholders very, very quickly. It's understood that civil aerospace is important for nations and you can't have capitalist ideas just going and, and messing it up all the time. And, and you know, I, I think this idea that, that Boeing can just sort of can wait. They're just going to drift away. And I mean, I, you know, I thought when, when I saw the, the headlines about, um, you know, not launching a new aircraft till 2035 or whatever, I, I, I was really taken back to 1996 and the advert that uh, Nike put up, um, which said, you don't, you don't win silver, you lose gold. Well, Boeing has just Boeing has clearly lost gold now. But the question is actually whether they're even at the silver position or not, or whether they're drifting towards bronze. Um, and that is that's absolutely remarkable. That I don't think that that should be tolerated by America because if you lose your biggest exporter, if you lose you know the, a company that has systemic importance for the for huge swathes of U.S. industry, um, where are you going to be? I, but uh, exceptionally good question, Sash. Uh, and uh, again, right, I mean, one of the reasons we talk about this is, you know, this is not trying to be critical of the executives at the company. It's not trying to beat the company up nonsensically. Uh, it is because we all uh, admire, uh, appreciate and understand the value of Boeing uh, to the global commercial aviation ecosystem. And certainly as Americans, it's it's almost central importance uh, as the leading contributor to America's balance of trade payments. Uh, it is the nation's leading dollar value exporter. Um, so uh, for industry, for manufactured goods. So it's, you know, it matters a lot, which is why we talk about it uh, a lot. Uh, Ron, uh, let me just uh, go over to you uh, and and sort of, you know, what, what is it that you found interesting about 737, right? I mean, what is it that they, got, they were highlighting uh, in a factory at Renton that's been producing 737s for decades now? Yeah, I mean, a, a couple of things in, in our in the tour that I was on, you know, ultimately, the questions did come up, uh, you know, what's the rate of airplanes uh, going through the facility, so on and so forth. And there was a lot of confusion around they were loading airplanes at 31 per month, but they weren't coming out of the facility at 31 per month because of um, all kinds of issues. There was, um, you know, on the on the earnings call. Uh, they suggested that engines were the big holdup, but actually when we took a tour of the facility, it turns out that they're not, that engines are a holdup right now uh, to get to maybe 38 per month. Um, but you know, between the inventory that they have built up, that they had built up over COVID, and then just the engines hanging off wings of airplanes that haven't been delivered, they've got plenty of engines to get airplanes out the door, and that there's a myriad of supply chain issues that are... Um, um, you know, slowing things down. They highlighted one on fuselages, but that was just just one, probably I know of many. Um, you know, I've heard things that you know there's there's been quality issues in the hundreds on on airplanes as they're going through the facility, uh, related to stuff in the supply chain and related to things that you know Boeing was doing themselves. Um, as you know, I mean the production line went cold, uh, and then it had a restart. And right. even during the best of times, that's really, really difficult to do. And, you know, from a supply chain perspective, this clearly isn't the best of times. So this is an extraordinarily difficult time 
uh, for them to to do that. I mean, there was inventory about, and there was plenty of wings laying around, wing skins, um, you know, pieces of nacelle covers. Um, you, so, you know, in, in previous walks around that facility, it was, you know, kind of a, a cleaner facility, if you will. Um, but, you know, one of the messages was, and we've heard this from other companies, not just Boeing, so this isn't unique to them, that kind of going forward, expect everybody to carry much more inventory, more buffer stocks, more buffer time, um, that that kind of thing. And then it was interesting, Spirit Aerosystems reported this week, and um, the market didn't really like those numbers. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, Spirit was saying, hey, you know, we're having difficulty uh, stabilizing at 31 per month, and it's going to take a lot longer for us to be there. And we'll probably be at 31 per month longer than anybody hopes. Um, so it that's you know, clearly a constraining factor for um, seven through seven production. So you know, there's still a lot of challenges in the supply chain. And uh, what you hear is things are getting maybe better, but it's still a lot of challenges. And uh, to point out right on those earnings, defense did really, really well. The challenges that the commercial aviation side of the business uh, is is much much larger, uh, and and had a more profound impact. And hence, you know, Tom's whole strategy there, and Duane's whole strategy of trying to grow the defense footprint to try to insulate the company from some of these uh, shocks. Ron, let me just ask one follow up uh, on lessors uh, and uh, what they reported, and what you take away from that, and maybe Sash kind of get your take on that as well. Go ahead. Yeah, so this week we had both Aircap and Airlease uh, report numbers, and uh, you know, and this should not surprise anybody. You know what the lessors are saying is, hey, you know what, asset values are getting better, lease rates are going up, um, and you know that's obviously in no small part due to uh, the, if you will, the, the shortage of airplanes coming out of the out of the OEs. So you know, if you're an aircraft lessor, it's it's a, it's a good place to be today. I mean, as sort of investor parlance. The setup is good um, because they are a source of lift. Um, and in, in particular, like in Aircap's case, if you own a fleet of older airplanes that you bought at, in, at the bottom of the downturn from a motivated seller, most likely those aircraft will be worth more than what you paid for them in the current environment because those aircraft will be used probably longer and harder than anybody previously anticipated because of the supply chain challenges impacting the OEs. Um, Sash, I know that you guys don't cover uh, lessors, but want to get your take on what uh, Ron was saying and hearing and seeing when he was visiting the 737 line and you know what you're picking up on the supply chain uh, in Europe and how Airbus is trying to cope with it. Well, I mean, remember, Airbus has got an international supply chain. Uh, they've been dollarizing for 20 years now. Uh, they have a lot of supply coming from the US. Um, and it's been very interesting talking not just to Airbus, but actually to other European manufacturers, that the supply chain is probably weakest in the US at the moment. I think there are quite a lot of tier two, tier three suppliers who cut costs and cut staff too deeply during the uh, the pandemic or too quickly and too deeply during the pandemic and then didn't um, build back capacity or weren't able to, to re-employ the staff that, that they'd cut. Airbus's view is, you know, the supply chain is the, the biggest challenge for them, its engines, um, you know, they, they regularly have a couple of dozen gliders, as they call them, aircraft without engines, which they're, you know, where they're, they're waiting for, um, for supply of theirs. But I mean, their, their view, certainly at their capital market, say, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago was um, the supply chain is the biggest single risk at the moment, but it's probably not getting any worse. Um, uh, and they expect it to 
uh, start to, you know, to, the problems start to moderate um, probably by the middle of next year. Although I think they're saying that with, with fingers crossed and behind the back. Uh, Richard, uh, I want to bring you in on uh, the China Southern uh, Max being out of uh, schedule now, which is kind of interesting because it was, it, you know, it had gone back in schedule uh, with Chinese carriers uh, and the Airbus uh, China announcement, or rather Airbus's comment on uh, China's announcement uh, and Australia getting C-130 and Sweden not being happy about an H-90, which isn't really new. Uh, the country got for Blackhawks uh, because it wasn't getting an H-90. Walk us through all of these sort of storylines, especially we sort of as we head into uh, the Zhuhai Air Show, which is a big event on the calendar, which all of you guys have attended at one point or another, but aren't attending this year. Walk us through all of these different storylines. Yeah, lots to discuss indeed. Um, news out of China, of course, uh, China Southern um, basically, yeah, they were going to take they put the 737 Max back in service. Another step. There's, you know, it's an incredibly okay, opaque process of returning the Max to service in China, which is not what we would hope for, given you know that they'd been showing such promising signs of creating a robust safety system. But um, it, for a variety of reasons, it looks like it's back out of the schedule. It's hard to tell whether that was political or whether it was, you know, there was another lockdown that, you know that the jets weren't required um, at the same time for what it's worth that they were also announcing the uh, the phase out of his a380s um, so it's it's not really clear uh, what's lockdown driven and and what's political what is far more political is Boeing's um, oh, sorry Airbus order for China being reheated by the political um, you know system you know as you know it's a sort of a two-pronged system for order announcements basically the the carriers say they'd like to order planes but they aren't announced and then the government taking charge having a banquet and saying ah we are awarding these orders to you as you know they, they, they didn't really used to be in charge they were just making it look like that now they really are in charge and what happened is a few weeks ago, they had placed an order for 292. And then in conjunction with, excuse me, with Olaf Schultz, they said, well, we're reconfirming 140 of these and basically looking like Airbus and Europe were being rewarded and America and Boeing effectively being punished. You know, right. how much of this is real, how much of it is show, it, it's hard to tell, but it's, it's clear that for now, Airbus is very much in favor and Boeing is very much not, just, to, you know, uh -huh. just reinforcing that point. You have to love uh, authoritarianisms and and how they use uh, trade as a as a weapon. Ah, the good old days. Indeed, um, indeed, and they were making such progress away from this nonsense. Uh, but here we are, back with it again. Uh, there you go. After after such a modest uh, party congress, uh, and and of course, you know, she and hardliners kind of skating out on the ice and and trying to to look tough uh, and act tough. So I mean, this is kind of consistent with their messaging. Um, Ron and Sash, do you guys want to uh, jump in on this? Ron first, and then Sash, you know, your take on, on sort of the optics and the messaging and what it tells markets. Yeah, I mean, you know, Boeing said themselves that, you know, their outlook right now, uh, they said actually on 737s that they thought they could get to 50 per month uh, without China. Um, we actually don't have that in our forecast. We think that's uh, not sustainable if indeed uh, that's the case. Um, but they seem to um, think that, yeah, this could last for a while and they've sort of de-risked at least their outlook to the investment community by taking China out of it. Sash? Oh, good luck with that. 
uh, nobody ever de-risks uh, China, um, in, in my view, when, when China has been 30% of Boeing deliveries for last decade and a half, nearly two decades, frankly. Um, I would be really surprised if uh, it's as de-risked as they would like to think. Um, I, I've just got a couple of points to add, actually, um, or specifically about the, um, uh, well, it's not an Airbus order, it's a Chinese order for Airbuses. Um, because Airbus has already put it in its backlog because they, they got the order back in um, uh, back in July. Uh, and Airbus has been going around saying nothing to do with us. You know, this is political. Um, it's pretty insulting. Olaf Scholz goes, the German chancellor goes there. This is the very first um, uh, time that President Xi has met anybody from out, you know, from, from the West effectively in three years, um, largely because of the pandemic. And incredibly, you know, arguably a very important um, uh, meeting because it's you know designed to show that uh, China is still open to the open to the world and open to trade, and all Olaf Scholz gets is half of an order that has already been announced. Um, so he's not even worth two hundred ninety-two, two hundred ninety-three aircraft. He's worth one hundred and forty of them. Um, I, it's, I find that astonishingly insulting. So who, who's going to get the order for the other? Uh, 150 aircraft. Is it going to be Macron if he goes, President Macron in France, if he goes there back in November? But this idea that the Chinese can, you know, just sort of divide a, um, these orders up between various visiting politicians and say, you know, you, you'll each get a little bit. I suppose that's communism for you, but um, it's it, it's not the sort of the compliment that they probably intended it to be. Unless they really didn't intend it to be a compliment, right? In which case, message uh, message uh, delivered. Uh, just really quickly uh, to uh, go around the horn as we are running short on time, but Zuhai was a really, really big event uh, on the calendar. All of you guys have attended it. Uh, I don't believe any of you are going uh, this year. And in fact, it's become sort of, you know, as, as Sash, you pointed out, it's actually become sort of a yearly thing. Um, you know, what, 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 what should we expect to hear out of a show where there used to be a very, very large U.S. component, but now there is not as large of a U.S. component? I think the Chinese are terribly concerned about there being a U.S. component. Um, uh, Western companies went there to try to sell into, into China. But the Zhuhai show, certainly, I mean, I haven't, I haven't attended it since the pandemic. And um, it's getting a lot harder for Westerners to go there, frankly. Um, it's becoming more of a defence show. Let's be absolutely honest about it. What, what people tend to fail to understand about the Zhuhai show is that about one quarter of the entire display space is uh, army equipment. Um, a, ver a hall that in the context of Paris or, or Farnborough would be huge, is just full of uh, army stuff. Uh, armoured vehicles, guns, tanks, uh, missiles. Um, a huge amount of which are, you know, prototypes of demonstrators, but they just pack it full. It's it's an astonishing sight to see. And that's only a quarter of the show, and it's sort of tucked away in a corner somewhere. Um, I think I think that unless the C919 flies at the show, and remember the C919 has never flown at a Zhuhai Air Show yet, um, it's quite hard to see this, the C919 entering service on schedule in December, as it's supposed to, with China Eastern, as it's supposed to, if they don't actually fly the damn aircraft for a public show at some stage in its, uh, in it, in its career. So I think that's going to be, you know, it's quite important. Otherwise, I think, you know, it's military stuff. It's going to be, uh, what sort of display can the J-20, the big, you know, it's not an F-22 lookalike, but it's a, a it's more or less an, an, an F, they, they would think of it as an F-22 class, you know, twin-engined, heavy, stealthy aircraft. 
that aircraft it's in its flying displays has got better and better over the last five years or so. It used to be chronically underpowered with a very, very poor flight control system. Every time it pulled into a turn, the nose dipped down because they hadn't got the, the coupling right, and it's got better. And now they're flying, you know, last, uh, last year they flew two, perhaps they five, four or five. That's, you know, sending a very, very clear message. Um, I've seen quite a lot of coverage saying, you know, they're going to talk about their, you know, the new bomber, the H six K, which makes me laugh. The H six bomber is a recycled Tupolev sixteen, the old Badger. Um, it is B fifty two vintage, basically. But you know, the Chinese are putting very, very big anti ship missiles on it because that's what it does. I think the other interesting thing is going to be drones. There are always tons of drones fucking around Zhuhai, um, you know, all shapes, sizes. Uh, and it's very difficult to work out which of those are production and which of those are, you know, just sort of trailing uh, something. Um, and then the other thing is going to be air-to-air refueling. Um, there seems to be a variant of the, the Y-20 transport. I really like the Y-20 transport. It's a, um, uh, you know, it's a C-17 scale uh, beast and the Chinese have got it in production. They've got it in service. You know, they've got probably 30 or 40 of them in service now. Um, and they seem to have produced an air-to-air refueling variant. Uh, and that's the sort of force enabler that uh, I think the Chinese really do need um, if they're going to make a make serious their, their threat to Taiwan. So there'll be things I'll be watching. Really quickly, uh, Richard and Ron, anything you guys want to add to that? Well, I just would add, you know, that that strength on the military side, that emphasis on military, of course, is accompanied by a degree of weakness on the commercial. You know, the C919, yeah, not flying, ARJ21, really nothing to be proud of, but most interesting of all, of course, is MA700, which of course was supposed to enter service right about now. And of course, uh, with the Canadian and Western embargo on the engine means it's completely not flying. There's, it, there was a story the air current uh, said that, you know, it resurfaced with uh, either an alternative engine or some, you know, PW-150s that were lying around. But, you know, clearly what should have been one of the stars of the show, their first ever regional turboprop transport that's worth anything and may, might have even been exported is basically now dead. So, yeah, uh, strong emphasis on uh, on military. I, on the military side, I, you know, I'd be interested to see what they've got by way of special mission. That's been sort of a weakness, particularly airborne early warning. And it could be that, uh, that Sash's Y-20 plays a role there, too. Um, but there are a number of weaknesses that need to be made good if they're ever going to play, well, if they're ever going to be as ag- aggressive as impl- they've implied they might be in Taiwan and elsewhere in the region. Uh, Ron, uh, you know, speaking of Asia Pacific, Admiral Chaz Rick- Richard, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, uh, spoke to the Naval Submarine League uh, last week. I was in the audience where he sort of gave a clarion call uh, that the United States is the turn edge was uh, diminishing and we have to move with some alacrity in order to be able to address it. The Wall Street Journal, I think, wrote an editorial based on it. Um, you know, are, are you hearing any of these themes being mirrored or resonating on, on Wall Street uh, at a time when we've been talking about decoupling now for the last you know, I don't know, seven years that this show has been on the air. Yeah, I mean, it, I think there's it's it's resonating more in the investment community, but maybe not completely. Um, and when I field calls on defense from investors, they probably split between the impact of what's going on in the Ukraine on defense and uh, what's going on in the Pacific Rim. So, um, yeah, there's it, there, it resonates some, but, but not completely. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it does clearly... You know, back up what was in the, what in the national defense strategy and the group posture review and so on and so forth. But um, I think investors are are broadly pretty bullish on, on defense, but 
you know, an incoming questions now, and you always get this kind of thing. You know, the defense sector, I believe, is so far the best performing sector in the S&P this year. Right. Uh, and then the questions are, where, where to from here? Um, and that's that's always and and with the and with the midterm you you always do a very very thoughtful midterm analysis uh, obviously um, there was a sense that uh, Democrats would retain the Senate lose the House now there's a sense that Republicans are going to gain uh, both the House and the Senate uh, from your standpoint does the spending outlook uh, change especially since uh, Republican leaders have not said blank check for defense. Yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good good question, Vago. Um, if they if they take both chambers, um, it it doesn't really change anything. Um, if they were to get just one chamber, um, it, the view gets a little more complicated, right? Because you can get back to some sort of dynamic that's similar to when the Tea Party came about. That um, if you were to see them just get the House, them meaning the GOP just get the House, uh, you could get into a dynamic where there's there'll be folks uh, in the house who just won't want to spend money on anything and question all kinds of things and there'll be questions around the debt limit and so on and so forth um the analysis we do kind of suggest that if they take both chambers that goes to the wayside um it's actually a pretty good scenario for defense at least from a headline perspective right um you know i think if you kind of peel back the onion on things in in the current environment even if the gop were to just take the house it would raise headline risk but in the end, how much of that actually filters through the budget? We would see, you know, kind of what you hear is some of the very senior Republicans actually are, you know, for defense spending. And but, but that being said, headlines do move markets and that kind of thing. So could it drive some volatility in defense? Yeah, sure, it could. We'll we'll have a lot of stuff to discuss next week, uh, uh, given you know whatever whatever it is uh, that happens. And uh, just to point out that cha- uh, that Admiral Richard also was talking uh, about the challenges of of strategic deterrent, uh, not just aimed at Russia, but now at China that's also dramatically modernizing its nuclear cap- capacity, and was talking about why we need to get more nuclear minded. Uh, in our strategic thinking, which I think was uh, great. Very, very quickly, uh, uh, and and each of you get a minute on this. Richard talked to us uh, about Australia getting C-130 and Sweden not being happy about NH-90, which is nothing new. Take it away. Yeah, you know, um, Europe's strength in the commercial market seems to be matched by weakness in the military market. The C-130J just, you know, keeps getting enough orders per year to basically keep going at about 20 a year and it's been that way since uh, like 1960 <laughs> i mean it's right. pretty extraordinary as a franchise the a400m looks like it's just going to end its life sometime before the end of this decade well before the end of this decade uh nh90 you know it didn't do badly as a transport but as anything missionized seems to be not good at all ditto for tiger you know basically Airbus's efforts to get into the missionized helicopter market, be it ATTAC or SAR or ASW, just, boy, it's gone spectacularly badly. Um, Coordination between the airframer and the people in charge of missionization just seems to be a very weak link. So big gainers, of course, Lockheed Martin, Sikorsky, uh, and Lockheed Martin, you know, with, of course, C-130J. And... Airbus and and Augusto S and Leonardo, of course, continuing to lead in civil markets, where of course uh, Lockheed Martin Sikorsky has completely abandoned. So you're looking at two, you know, in so many different ways, the U.S. is becoming more and more of an arsenal arsenal of democracy, but an abandoner of commercial markets. Whereas Europe, the big theme, you know, losing out on military but doing just great on commercial. 
Uh, and uh, Sash, you got the last word. If you want to comment on any of that, you can. Very briefly on uh, anything new we know about the British budget uh, and budget outlook, uh, certainly on the defense side, and a quick uh, Ukraine war update uh, from what you're uh, picking up. Obviously, Washington uh, sort of nudging uh, Ukraine, hey, at least be open uh, to negotiating uh, in order to maintain donor support. This is their demonstrations in Italy, for example, against the war. Walk us through, you know, and concerns that governments in Europe and populations in Europe will turn against uh, the war. Indeed, at this point, it's been a mild winter uh, in Europe, so um, the gas supplies ought to stretch uh, longer. Anyway, quickly walk us through all of these uh, themes. Yeah, okay. Um, UK Defence Budget. I mean, no news, but Ben Wallace, the UK Defence Secretary, uh, appeared before the House of Commons Defence Committee and then um, has done a couple of uh, other uh, meetings. And, you know, the headline there is, um, he's, he, you know, to paraphrase his, uh, you know, his takeaways, um, we'd like to get to 3%. It's an aspiration, but towards the end of the decade. The fact is, the UK budget is, overall, is under huge pressure short term. Defence spending will not go up as, as much as people uh, would want. And um, Defence will, will have to make some tougher decisions than they would have wanted. Um, I think that that is going to put pressure on some uh, procurement items. Uh, I think it's going to uh, mean that you're going to see a you know, much greater degree of rationalisation. It's very apparent at the moment that the army is just trying to cut down spending on legacy platforms and waiting for Boxer and to some extent Challenger 3 to come in because those will give dramatic, dramatically improved uh, capabilities and it, it just gives a much simpler fleet structure. Um, uh, Air Force and Navy, the most interesting uh, comments that uh, Wallace made was about the, the incredibly low number of pilots for the F-35. But the UK has got 27 F-35s and 33 pilots. I mean, for heaven's sake, that's not an act of war. Um, and there are problems with the whole pilot training system, um, which the chief of the air staff uh, Wallace, uh, you know, name checked him twice and said, I told him three years ago to sort this out and he hasn't done. I think uh, Chief of the Air Staff is going to have a, a, you know, a pretty uncomfortable interview without coffee um, with uh, Ben Wallace in the, in, you know, in the next week or so, because pilot training for, in, for the UK is just not working. Um, so, you know, uh, UK defence spending will, will be what it is. I don't think it's going to get cut. I just think it's at its people had very high expectations for increases and they won't occur in the short term unless of course you know the war in ukraine gets worse in which case defense spending becomes a non-negotiable uh, line item for, for any government and you just spend what, what you have to as for the war in ukraine itself um russians are clearly withdrawing from Kherson. um probably not withdrawing entirely but they they appear to have given up defending uh, that north bank of the dnieper river uh, it's probably not defensible. The question is going to be how long it takes them to either for them to withdraw or for the Ukrainians to force them to withdraw. But I think the risk was otherwise that they would lose a ton of personnel and equipment uh, in that pocket up there. I would caution, though, that I think that the Ukrainians proved brilliant at getting everybody to focus on one area, Hesson, and then actually launching an attack somewhere else. It's the old magician's, um, uh, the, the old magician's trick. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if actually the Ukrainians, rather than launching a major attack into Hesson, launched it somewhere totally different in the next three to four, uh, three to four weeks or so. We're at the odd stage at the moment where the mud um, is absolutely dominating uh, operations, i.e. it's stopping them. Then hopefully we'll get some sort of, there'll be some sort of freeze. And that, although it makes it very difficult for people to operate, makes going for vehicles 
um, significantly easier. Um, but that's again, that's a couple. Uh, it's a couple of weeks away because you say it's been a very, very mild autumn so far. And uh, in about ten seconds, European support still running high for Ukraine, or is it faltering? No, it's very, very high. You, you're. I mean, listen. You're always going to get. Um, uh, you know, demonstrations in Italy over stuff like that. But actually, I've been, I've been astonished at how high it is um, uh, politically. I think there's, a, and there is a, you know, to come back to the, your issue about the midterms, there's a real concern that if we don't support U- Ukraine, um, like, you know, the whole relationship with the US is going to get worse in the next two years and potentially very, very bad uh, after the um, presidential election. So I think, Europe, you know, Europe has to support Ukraine and has to do more, more in terms of defence. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, you said uh, no coffee uh, for uh, Air Chief Marshal, uh, Marshal Mike Wigston uh, at that meeting. And right. What's the old expression? No, no coffee, no biscuit, no chair. Right. So you just hope that at least it's the loss of coffee in the biscuit. At least he gets a chair. Yeah, I hope so. Um, but I'm very, very interested that um, uh, Defense Secretary you know, Wallace, high, you know, name checked him twice as having failed to deliver what he was asked to do three years ago. Yeah, that's uh, certainly not a good look. And it's not a good look for what is uh, an extraordinary Air Force uh, that actually has a reputation for thinking things through. So it's it's a, a very, very surprising uh, development indeed. Guys, thanks very much. Uh, absolute pleasure uh, having you guys on. Hope you guys have a great day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Hey, great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Great to be on, Vago. Thanks very much.